later in our time of prayer tonight, we'll be praying for Pastor Keith as he continues to serve the Lord in Columbia, and we'll be coming home tomorrow. So uh, let's anticipate uh, interceding on his behalf. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read for us in just a few moments verses 42 through 47. One of our goals on Sunday evenings during this time frame is to set before you some vision for the year 2012 and beyond and to hear encouraging testimonies concerning some aspects of that vision, which we'll do even tonight. We get to hear from, I think, Tracy and Nathan, at least Tracy's here. And to pray about such matters. And one of our desires as your pastors is to see Heritage Baptist Church increasingly become characterized by what I'm going to call, listen carefully, the normative dynamics of the Church of Jerusalem shortly after she was born. The church, in Jer- the church of Jerusalem had a wonderful and extraordinary birth, but once it had been born, it was just a church. But it was a church that had many attractive characteristics, which in fact are normative and ought to be aspired toward by us. And so tonight, in particular, I want us to look at this church. Now, before we do, let me just very quickly give you the context. We're so close to the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, In chapter 1, we have the Lord Jesus telling the disciples to tarry, to wait, to remain in Jerusalem until the promised spirit came. He talked to them a little bit about what he wanted them to do once the Holy Spirit had been given, especially with regard to their mission. And you all remember that uh, he said, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I want you to be witnesses for me first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then into the uttermost, uttermost parts of the earth. So we see sort of concentric circles going out like when a stone or rock is thrown in a lake. And there is a lesson there. I think it means that We have to first be missionaries where we live. It doesn't make sense to go to Samaria and walk past all of the citizens of Jerusalem who are lost. Owensboro, Kentucky is our Jerusalem. But after he said that, he ascended and the disciples went back to Jerusalem and they prayed and they prayed with others and including women and then some days passed and Peter said we need to replace Judas and through God's divine guidance Matthias was chosen and then the day of Pentecost came and the promised spirit was given and that spirit was poured out in such an extraordinary way that the disciples began to speak in languages that they had never learned they were real languages 
And they were speaking of the mighty works of God in many different languages and caused a, a great raucous. And there were, in addition to that supernatural phenomenon, there were the tongues of fire and so forth. And, and then Peter had to explain what was really happening because already there was a false accusation. These people must be drunk. And Peter says, no, far from it. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And he launches into a sermon which basically points to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, whom they had crucified and who had risen from the dead. And he said, this, this is the Messiah. You killed the Messiah. And he is your only hope. And you know that in the midst of that sermon, this is what we'd all uh, want to happen. Peter couldn't even complete it because... There was such deep conviction that there was an outcry, men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter told them, you need to be repent and demonstrate your repentance in the outward act of baptism. And if you repent and believe that way about your sins and your need of Christ, you'll be saved. And the promise will be to you and to all who repent and believe in the same kind of way. And at the end of that sermon, you know roughly how many people got saved. About 3,000. And in verse 41, it says, So those who received his word were baptized. Only those who received the word were baptized. It isn't my design tonight to undermine the teaching of pedo-baptism. But I have to just say this. The only people that were baptized that day were people who received the word. If you can conceive of how an infant can receive the word, understand the word, and act upon the word, then perhaps you can conceive of infants being baptized. But it was those who had received the word. And then we have this wonderful description of the life of the church there in Jerusalem. And as I read verses 42 through 47, notice that most of it is normative. You will observe very quickly what is not normative. It's in verse 43. But almost everything else is normative. And so as I read it, just sort of be asking yourself this question. Could these things possibly characterize Heritage Baptist Church? Should they? Could we pray for them? Should we work toward them? That's what I want you to think about. So I read verse 42. And they, these newly baptized disciples, devoted themselves to four things. One, the apostles' teaching. That would be apostolic instruction. Two, the fellowship. Three, the breaking of bread, not just breaking of bread, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Actually, I inserted the definite article before the word fellowship because it should be there. It's in the original language. These are all specific. And then comes verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here we have a very dynamic church. Dynamic, properly defined, simply means marked by continuous and productive activity or change. Energetic, forceful. This was a dynamic church. And much of its dynamism ought to characterize churches in our day. That's my assertion. I'll distinguish between those things which can and those things which cannot as we look at that for just a few moments. So here's what I want to submit. I want to submit that uh, this group of people, 3,000 plus, well, there were 120 before that, became something that had never existed before. Here's the way one commentator put it. I thought this was quite helpful. As a result of Peter's wonderful sermon, a form of society rises which had never appeared on earth before. New forces act upon the social nature of men and bring them together from new feelings and for new engagements and new purposes, there is a new society before us. New, at least in many respects. The ecclesia receives new elements, throbs with new impulses, assumes new proportions, sets itself to new functions, and exerts new influences upon the world. Which of those are normative, and all I mean by that is which of those ought yet to characterize the life of the church and which were only extraordinary and temporary. I submit there are five things, and I present them rather quickly. What are the marks of a dynamic church blessed by the Holy Spirit? Number one, and I'm just taking these in the order of the text. Number one is what I would call devoted churchmanship. Some translations use the word steadfast. They devoted themselves, according to verse 42, to four things. I've already mentioned them. What were the four things? Apostolic instruction, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. It's a little bit difficult to say with absolute certainty what the fellowship means. It's the Greek word koinonia. You've all heard it. It simply means the sharing. Well, what was the focus of that sharing? We can't be absolutely sure. It could have been the sharing of material blessings that others needed. It could have been the kind of sharing that we do in some context when we get together and open our hearts to one another and pray for one another, and encourage one another and admonish one another. It's difficult to say for absolute certain, but the early church, this church, 
and all churches I submit should, be characterized by a Holy Spirit-produced communion and sharing with one another, an openness. But it's called the sharing. The third thing is the breaking of bread. And I think you've heard this before, surely by now. This is a reference to the Lord's Supper. This is not a reference to just, you know, we say, hey, we ought to get together and break bread sometime. No, this is the breaking of bread. This is remembering the Lord's death, his broken body, and his shed blood. And it says they continued together. They were devoted to the prayers. This church in Jerusalem was a praying church. Exactly how they prayed, when they prayed, we cannot say for sure. How do you get 3,000 people in a prayer meeting? Can you have a prayer meeting with 3,000 people without a, you know, amplification? I don't know how they did it. I don't know if they broke up into groups. I don't know if Peter was able to preach. You know, they gathered at the, uh, at the temple, uh, Solomon's Colonnade, which was apparently a huge uh, stairway leading up to the porch and the big columns that held up the roof. And there was a lot of room for a, for a fairly large gathering of people. And maybe, maybe various ones did lead in prayer. This is what we know, though. They devoted themselves to prayer. So the first mark of a Holy Spirit-filled, dynamic church is what I'm calling devoted churchmanship. And we want that to continue to characterize and to increasingly characterize Heritage Baptist Church, where there is a hunger a hunger for the word of God taught apostolic doctrine. We have the epistles written by the apostles and the apostles taught what Jesus taught. So if you have apostolic teaching, you also have the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles help us understand the Old Testament. A healthy church is a church that takes the ministry of the word, careful exposition, penetrating application, very very carefully. And I have to say, albeit it's my son, this morning there was a lot of helpful application in that sermon about the devil and how he works in our lives, and especially to men. That's what must continue to characterize the ministry of the Word of God, whether it be in a disciple you class or in corporate gatherings such as this from the pulpit. So anyway, that's the first one, devoted churchmanship. I would summarize it all by saying hungry. First sign is they were hungry people. The second sign would be this. They were a people who had an abiding sense of awe. Where do you see that? See that in verse 43. Not all of verse 43 is extraordinary. My text says, and awe came upon every soul. My text does not say, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and awe came upon every soul. It's possible that the latter statement is an explanation for the cause of awe, but I know of another cause of awe, and so do you. And that is just reflecting on the absolute wonder of God's grace. These people couldn't get over the fact that God saved them. Just back a few verses, they were overwhelmed with conviction. They were cut to the heart, Luke tells us, and they interrupt the sermon and they get radically converted and they're baptized and they become into a fellowship with one another. And Luke tells us that there remained with them. This isn't something that they experienced once. This continued to characterize them a sense of awe. 
We don't ever want to lose a sense of awe. And awe and joy are not antithetical. But we must be a people who has a holy and awesome fear of the God that we love so much and delight in. And we must continually be gripped by the amazing grace of God. We ought to be saying to one another, you know, I just can't get over it. I can't get over it. I can't get over it. When Tim read today the story that he wrote about Abraham almost slitting the throat of Isaac, in that class, we were gripped. And at the end of the story, he said, sound like anything you've ever heard? Did you see Jesus in the story? And our hearts were touched deeply to think that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, crushed his son on our behalf. And we felt, I think we felt, the amazingness of grace there as well. We must not get over that. So that's, that's a second characteristic. Hungry, amazed, And thirdly, I'm going to suggest generous. Look at verses 32, 34, and 35. Actually, maybe we can just look at verses 44 and 45 here. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. There's a very similar passage found in chapter 4. I won't take time to turn us there right now. But what do you have going on here? You've got a group of people who love each other so much that they can't look upon one another's struggles and Burdens and sorrows and poverty without saying, what can I do to help? There's a group of people here for whom the love of stuff gave place to the love of the brethren. Now, there perhaps are aspects to this that... Don't need to be duplicated, don't have to be duplicated. And this passage, I'm sure, has been abused in the history of of the church to uh, promote a kind of Christian communism, which the Bible nowhere calls for. And there were unique problems at this time in the church of Jerusalem. There was a lot of poverty, and you have all these people coming from all over the world. They were there on the day of Pentecost, and God had done something so wonderful, and he was establishing a church there, and they didn't go back to their homelands, and they didn't have a place to stay, and they didn't have money, and there was a tremendous need, and there were maybe other factors. But the point is, when God's people come into times of need, God's people respond to that need. And this church must forever be characterized by that willingness to jump into the situation and say, we've got to help them. What can we do, honey? Can we sell that car? Can we, can we take some money out of our savings? Can we, what can we do? We've got to help. And sometimes that's organized because the need is so great that we need a lot of people helping. 
And we don't want to just feel good about, well, you know, we give our tithes and offerings and we hear there's a line item for benevolence. Uh, that'll take care of it. Well, that that may help. But much of the work needs to be done by the people for the people. And we need to rally in one another's lives. So a dynamic church is hungry. A dynamic church is amazed. A dynamic church is generous. And I would submit that a dynamic church is also joyful. Look at... Uh, Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple, that's the corporate worship. We saw the corporate worship also in verse 42, didn't we? Good churchmanship. There they're, they're gathering. Day by day, day by day, day by day. Are you kidding me? I go to church once a week on Sunday. Do we have to go to the temple? No, we want to go to the temple. We want to pray. We want to sing. We want to hear the word. We want to hear some apostolic instruction. We want corporate worship. But I've already touched on that. So what's the rest of the verse about? The rest of the verse is what happens when Sunday's over and or when that corporate worship experience is over. It says, and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with gladness, gladness, with glad and generous hearts. What's this about? This is about people saying, hey, can you come over? Come over for dinner. Let's get together. We've got to have a meal together. And just enjoying each other's company. That's actually one of the reasons why we're trying to have meals for our care groups, because there is something wonderful about just eating together. Um, <laughs> I think it's common to all human beings. I don't know of a culture in the world where people don't enjoy the fellowship that is associated with gathering around a meal. And so these early Christians loved each other so much that they wanted to spend time together. It wasn't a duty. It was a desire. And they loved each other so much that not once in a great while they got together to have a meal, but they did this as well daily, if at all possible. Now, we can't, we can't duplicate some of that. I understand. I don't, want, I don't want you to hold me to all of these details. I'm saying look underneath and see what the dynamic was and ask yourself, is that legitimate for 21st century Christians or not? Do you think it's legitimate that we care for needy people in our church and help the poor? Yes. Of course. Do you think it's good that we gather together in corporate worship to be good churchmen and to do the things that God has ordained that we do for the well-being of our souls? Yes. Do you think it's good that Christians get together and have meals together with gladness. This is a joyful people. And I'm quite sure that the next door neighbors looked at them and said, you know, the Smiths are having the Joneses this week, aren't they? Listen to them. They're all laughing and they're singing and they're having a good time together. They're embracing each other. They love each other. Man, they're really a loving people, aren't they? What is it that makes them that way? And you got those little groups all over Jerusalem, 3,000 people converted, loving each other, caring for each other, eating together with each other. Why do I think that was probably a good witness? Because of the fifth thing that I want to point out, and that is that we have community respect. 
That's what I'm going to call it. Look at verse um, 47. These, these people who were eating together with glad and generous hearts were also praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, what does that mean, having favor with all the people? This means the outsiders. These are those that are not Christians. And it's just a general word for people. It may not be that they had favor with the religious leaders, but they had favor with people generally. Generally, people looked on them and said, those are really nice people. Those Christians, they seem to really care for each other. They really enjoy getting together, don't they? They, they praise God. They sing. They worship. They give. They care for each other. Wow. I'm impressed with that. There is a sense in which our church and all biblical churches should be attractive. You say, why would you say that? Of course there's a sense. Well, because there is also what is called the attractional church, and that's, that's sort of a gimmicky approach to trying to make yourself look attractive. That's a seeker-friendly kind of thing. And we react to any kind of exploitation of those kinds of means. But the truth is that a body of believers made up of people who are just passionate in their love for God and his word and his face and his throne and who love each other and love to get together and want to share with each other, and want to help each other, and want to spend time with each other. That's very, very attractive in this world. Because in many respects, it's a very lonely, very lonely and cruel society that we're a part of. And so, no wonder, in addition to being hungry and amazed and generous and joyful, they're attractive. They have favor. People weren't hating them and speaking ill of them. And finally, I want you to notice how verse 47 ends. It says, and the Lord added to their number day by day. The Lord added to their number day by day. Who did he add? Those who were being saved. How how was that working out? I'm not sure. Maybe some of them were getting saved at the corporate gatherings where the word of God was preached and taught. Maybe many of them were getting saved because the people of the church, the members of the church, were witnessing to their neighbors. That's something we want to happen, isn't it? We want to be more missional in that regard. We, we literally, I want to put this on your conscience, we literally want everyone in this church to be mindful of who their next-door neighbor is and ask yourself, do we have any reason to think that our neighbors are going to heaven? If you do, then you don't have to be terribly burdened for them, and you begin looking for the one who lives next to them. But what if your next-door neighbor is on their way to hell? Then the question becomes, honey, have we, have either of us ever shared the gospel with them? What, what can we do? We need, to, we need to find some creative ways 
And we're going to hear a little about that later in just the time of sharing. So I'm sure God used the means. The Lord was the Savior. People can't save people, but people can be instruments in the saving of people. God was doing the saving, and God was adding these converts to the church. And this was a growing church. And how do you isolate the the fact that this is a growing church from everything else that I've said? Do you really think there's no connection at all? No, I think there's a very vital connection. Show me a group of people who are hungry for the word of God and fellowship with God himself in corporate worship and who feast on the means of grace and who haven't gotten over the amazement of their own salvation and who have generous hearts and meet the needs of one another in that new society, in that local church, in that family of believers and who are joyful in their getting together and eating and who are respected And I'll show you a church that is growing. Growing not in an artificial way, but growing because God is saving sinners and he's adding to the church. So are there some aspects to verses 42 through 47 that are not normative? Yes, there are. Are there some unique, peculiar situations? Yes, there are. We certainly don't have any apostles doing signs and wonders. But we have the means of grace. We have no reason to get over how amazing it is. The sense of awe. We still can love and care for one another and be joyful and be respected in our community. And that's one of the things that the pastors want for Heritage Baptist Church. So I'm just setting it. It's nothing profound about anything I've done tonight. It's just a fresh look at this passage and saying, what in it do you think could and should better characterize heritage? Let's, let's strive for it together. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this revelation. Uh, it's a wonderful record. We know that the church in Jerusalem was made up of sinners, and we know that later there were serious issues in that church and yet upon being newly born it was characterized by so many things that are still attractive we pray that you will help us help us to be devoted to the means of grace help us to be amazed at our salvation help us to be generous to the needy within our assembly Help us to be together with loved ones and to take meals together and be joyful and, and let the world see our joy. Help us to find that honor from unconverted people who cannot deny that what we have is what they want. And Lord, would you be pleased to use those means to save more sinners and to build your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think...